All right, everyone, good morning and happy Sabbath. It's good to see all of you here. Um, for those of you who have been coming on a weekly basis, Alistair has been teaching this class. He's out of town this week. Um, I have been coming, so I kind of know where we left off, so we're just going to pick up and keep going. He will be back next week, so don't worry. Um, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we will... Um, go ahead and get started with our study today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath morning that we can study your word. Please bless us now. Send your spirit to guide us as we go through these passages. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will follow the same pattern as before. Um, if you have a comment or if you're going to read a verse, I would ask that you raise your hand and we'll give you the handheld microphone so it can get into the recording so that the people listening on the recording will also be able to hear your comments and the verses that you read. Now, <clears throat> this week we are going to study two churches. We're going to study the fifth and sixth churches of Revelation. That would be Sardis and Philadelphia. Um, we're going to have to move somewhat quickly to get through these, but I just want to do a quick run-through of where we've gone so far. We've seen Ephesus. That was the church that left its first love. And it's also when the Nicolaitan teaching of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness started creeping into the church. Then you had, <coughs> then you had the church of Smyrna. And Smyrna was the persecuted church. They had no rebuke. And in the church of Smyrna, we see that a group of people who said they were Jews but are not, but were of the synagogue of Satan, introduced themselves. We're going to see that group of people again in the church of Philadelphia today. Then we get to the church of Pergamos. The interesting point here is you have the doctrine of Balaam and you have Balak. Um, if, you know, if you know what the word Balak means, the word Balak means desolation. And what Balaam did in... in um, in his teaching was to teach the children to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. What Balaam did was an abomination. So here you have the concept of the abomination of desolation showing up in the Christian church. This was in the Pergamos church. And the Pergamos church was from 313 to 538. It's interesting if you look at Daniel 11, we see the abomination of desolation set up in 508 when Clovis the king of France and the papacy formed a league together. So we see that correlation. Then we looked at Thyatira last week. We see the union of church and state in an adulterous relationship with the woman Jezebel and the application of the three and a half years when her and Ahab were in Israel and there was no rain. And it's analogous to the three and a half prophetic years of the 1260 years of the papal reign. And that brings us, well, and then as we get to the end, then we see towards the end of this 1260 years, God sends the morning star. That's the Protestant Reformation. And interestingly, John Wycliffe was called the morning star. He came onto the scene in 1374. This brings us to the church of Sardis. So now we're in the fifth church. Now, I'd like a volunteer to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, so if someone could volunteer to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Is there a... Okay, there's a volunteer up here. So if we could get the microphone up here and speak up so everyone can hear you. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who is the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. 
You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, and strength what remains is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angel. He who has an ear, let him hear. And the Spirit says to the church. Okay, thank you very much. So we've just read the first six verses of chapter 3, which talks about the church of Sardis. Now, um, this is a fairly short passage compared to the previous church, Thyatira. And one reason why is if you look at this church historically, this is the church from 1798 to about the year 1832. So compared to Thyatira, which was from 538 to 1798, this church has a much shorter period of existence. Now, the word Sardis itself means prince or song of joy, or it also means that which remains. And I'm going to focus more on the concept of that which remains. Um, this is the period of 1798. The Protestant Reformation was most prominent in about the 15th century, in the 1500s. Um, now here we are in 1798, and the way this church is being described is that which remains. And... Notice how God describes them in verse 1. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. What does this make you think of when God describes the church in this manner? So here you have a church that claims to be Christian. They, have, they take the name of Christ, but in actuality they are dead. Now, we're going to see why a little bit later on here, but basically what has happened in this church is that they have the name of Christ, but they live like the world. Now, Christ tells us to be dead to the world and alive in Christ, and so if they were dead in his sight, that means that the world was very much alive in this church. Now... Just a subtle reminder, or not so subtle, that we can take the name of Christ, and if we say we're a Christian, but we live like the world, Jesus may say the very same thing about us. So um, let's move on here. Now in verse 2 it says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. This is a church that is on its last legs. God's saying, you need to strengthen that which is left because you're about to die. You're so much like the world that, that you're dead. And there's very little that's left that points to your Christian experience. Now, <clears throat> moving along here, and we're going through two churches today, so we're going to do Philadelphia also. If you look in verse 3, it says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Now, question that I have, and I'd like to hear a response on this. Um, what was it that the, ch the Sardis church 
needed to remember that they had already heard. Any hands? What was it that the Sardis church had already heard and that they needed to remember? Okay, there's a hand in the back. If we could give the microphone. Wait till you get the microphone. Okay, so you're saying righteousness by faith, but specifically, where was the righteousness by faith message given um, that the Sardis church starting in 1798 should have remembered? Okay, so in a nutshell, um, the thing that the Sardis church had forgotten, the spirit that they had lost, was that of the Protestant Reformation. The Sardis church was that which remained of the Protestant Reformation. You see the concept of the Protestant Reformation in the Church of Thyatira when God sends the morning star. Remember, the the Church of Thyatira existed during the Dark Ages. And so during the, the history of nighttime in this earth, at the very end of the Dark Ages, or as night is coming to an end, God sends the morning star in the form of the Protestant Reformation. And it revitalized the Christian church. But by the time you get to the Sardis church, they are dead. They have the name of the Protestant reformers, but they don't have the experience. And so God is saying, remember, therefore, how that house received the Protestant Reformation and heard. Hold thou fast and repent. Now, notice what happens next to the church of Sardis. If they do not hold fast... If they don't remember what they have heard, they are in danger of something happening to them. And that's here in verse 3. Notice what happens here in verse 3. It says, If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now, here's another question. What is Jesus talking about here to the church of Sardis, which was from 1798 to 1832? What is he talking about here when he says, if you don't watch, I will come on you as a thief? Okay, there's a hand there again. Wait, wait till you get the microphone, please. It sounds like what? Okay, an end time statement. Like specifically what? Okay, so as um, it was pointed out back here, Jesus has said in the New Testament that um, he will come as a thief. And that verse is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, verse 4. And I will read this passage. Here it says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And continuing on in verse 5 and 6, Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. This is talking about Jesus coming the second time. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 6. So in Revelation chapter 3, in verse 3, when Jesus tells the church of Sardis, if you don't watch, I will come on you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. What Jesus is saying is, is that very shortly a message is going to come 
that preaches the second coming of Christ. And if you don't watch, if you don't hold fast to the spirit of the Protestant Reformation, when that time comes, that time will come upon you as a thief. So that's what Jesus is saying to the Church of Sardis, which existed from 1798 to 1832. Now, we know from history that shortly after the Church of Sardis, the teaching of the Second Advent came on to the world in full force. We're going to study about that in our next church, in the Church of Philadelphia. But you see the foreshadowing of that in the message to the Church of Sardis. Now, in verse 4 it says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What does it mean to not defile their garments? Can you think of a, of a passage in Scripture that talks about not being defiled? Okay, let's turn to James chapter 1, verse 27. And if I could have a volunteer to read James chapter 1, verse 27. James 1.27 Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Okay, so here you have a group of people in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And in James 1.27 we're told pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, if there was a few people in Sardis who had kept their garments undefiled, that meant that there were a few people in the church of Sardis who had kept themselves unspotted from the world or undefiled, which means that most of the church of Sardis had become defiled by the world. You see that? So they have a name, they say we're Christians, but Christ says, no, you're actually dead. The reason why is it's because you've been defiled by the world. So we see that very clearly here in James 1.27. Now, <clears throat> to give you um, a little bit of a historical background of this worldliness that had swept into the Sardis church, most Christians up until about the 1700s, all believed that Jesus would come literally in the clouds a second time before the thousand-year millennium. Around the 1700s, there was a person by the name of Daniel Whitby, and I'll read to you from Volume 4 of Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, pages 387 and 388, a new doctrine was introduced to the Christian church by a Protestant by the name of Daniel Whitby. And here um, in Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, starting on page 387, it says, the captivating post-millennial theory introduced about 1700 by Protestant Daniel Whitby swept like a tidal wave over Protestantism. It did not penetrate America, however, until its espousal by Jonathan Edwards. 
premised on a spiritual first resurrection and a world conversion that introduces the millennium without direct divine intervention, post-millennialism put the second advent at the close of the millennial period anywhere from 1,000 to 365,000 years in the future. Now, um, some people took the day for the year principle for the millennium and said, well, there's 365 days in a year and there's 1,000 years, so that's 365,000 years before Jesus comes. Now, what was the effect of this teaching of post-millennialism? Believe it or not, when William Miller was preaching 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, the post-millennialists did not disagree with William Miller's day-for-year principle. They also agreed with his starting point, roughly speaking. Some agreed that, yeah, it's going to be the 1840s. Some fell 1866, and it depended on where you put your starting point. But the post-millennialists disagreed with William Miller in the teaching of the Second Advent because they believed that at the end of the 2300 days, a thousand years of peace would begin here on this earth. A thousand years of peace and prosperity. And the truth of the matter is, the Protestants were objecting to the second coming teaching of the Millerites, not because they didn't believe in the verse, no man knows the day or the hour, and they used that as an argument, but it was because if Jesus came in the 1840s, it would destroy their cherished hopes of having a nice life here on this earth for a thousand years. And that's the truth of what most people don't really understand about what happened in the 1800s and the, the Millerite movement. The people that were opposed to the Millerite movement wanted that thousand years of peace and prosperity more than they wanted to see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven. The reason being is they loved this present world more than they loved Jesus. And obviously, no man can serve two masters. And the world was winning out in the church of Sardis. And so Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come on you like a thief. Moving on in verse 5, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Here we see the concept of... Um, those who overcome will not have their sins blotted out of the book of law. I'm sorry, that was phrased very poorly. Um, so if you, you were paying attention, you caught that that was wrong. Those who overcome will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. Therefore, they will have their sins blotted out. The converse of that is, is that if you don't overcome, your name will be blotted out of the book of life and your sins will not be blotted out. And if you look at Acts 3.19, we are told there that our sins will be blotted out when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. That's the latter rain. So that's still yet in the future. And then we end in verse 6. that says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There's more we could talk about in the church of Sardis, but you get the, the big picture that the Protestant Reformation was dying out people had turned away from the clear biblical teaching of a literal second advent of Christ and they were cherishing an idea of a thousand years of peace and prosperity here on this earth and they would rather have that thousand years of peace and prosperity here on this earth than to see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven and so Jesus sends them a warning and says hey the teaching of the second coming is going to come in your lifetime in full force and if you don't watch I'm going to come on you as a thief. That transitions us or segues us 
to the Church of Philadelphia, which begins in the period of about 1832. Now, um, let's go ahead and um, read verses 7 through 12. If I could have a volunteer again to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Could someone read Revelation 3, verses 7 through 12 um, with a microphone? Okay, Chris, thank you. Okay, thank you. So this is a little bit of a longer message than what we saw to the message of the Church of Sardis. Now, Philadelphia means brotherly love. We all know that. And, um, of course, the modern-day city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is referred to that sometimes. But um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was named after the church in Asia Minor, or the city in Asia Minor, Philadelphia. Now, I want to read just briefly from Uriah Smith in Daniel and Revelation. And here he describes the church of Philadelphia. This is on page 386 and 387. Um, Here he says, The word Philadelphia signifies brotherly love and expresses the position and spirit of those who received the Advent message up to the autumn of 1844. The great religious awakening in the early part of the 19th century which resulted from a study of the prophecies culminated in this Advent movement. Men from all denominations were convinced that the coming of Christ was near. As they came out of the various churches, they left sectarian names and feelings behind, and every heartbeat in unison as all joined to give the alarm to the churches and to the world and pointed to the coming of the Son of Man as the believer's true hope. Selfishness and covetousness were laid aside, and a spirit of consecration and sacrifice was cherished. The Spirit of God was with every true believer and His praise upon every tongue. Those who were not in that movement cannot fully realize how great was the searching of heart, the consecration to God, the peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and the pure, fervent love for one another which true believers enjoyed. You know, I read it... um, a statement like that and it makes me long for an experience like that of true brotherly love in God's church today. I mean, um, probably one of the reasons why the Church of Philadelphia had so much power in the preaching of its message is because they were also so filled with brotherly love and the love of Christ for one another. And if we wonder why our 
preaching of the second advent doesn't have the power it had back then is because we don't have the brotherly love of the church of Philadelphia. Um, let me just, let's just go through um, some of the message to this church. So Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So Jesus commends this church for having brotherly love, and he says, I am holy, I am true, I have the key of David. Now, what is the significance of the key of David? Let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. And if I could have a volunteer to read Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Actually, Chris, Carmen, how, how about if you read it? Right, right there. Okay, so you have in Revelation the concept of having the key of David or the key to the kingdom of David. And in Luke chapter 1, we're told that Jesus, when he takes the throne of David, will reign forever and ever. Now, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but where in the book of Revelation does it talk about Jesus taking the kingdom um, and reigning forever and ever? It's in Revelation chapter 11. Let's turn there. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And in Revelation 11:15 it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, in Luke 1, 32 and 33, it talks about how Jesus would take the throne of David and would reign forever and ever. Here in Revelation 11:15, it says, The kingdoms of this world, which includes the kingdom of David, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, the question is, when did the seventh trumpet sound? If you look, if you look down at the end of this passage in verse 19, we see that when it sounded, the ark of, or the temple of God was open, and you could see the ark of the testament. So the seventh trumpet sounds on October 22, 1844. So when Jesus is talking to the church of Philadelphia, which is from 1832 to 1844, he's saying, I have a key to the kingdom of David, and I'm about to open a door so that I will enter into a place that I will now have the kingdoms of this world, and I will reign forever and ever. Do you see that, that concept there? Chris has his hand up here. Carlos, if you could give um, the mic to, to Chris. He has a comment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm familiar with that verse. I mean, for time, I wasn't going to go there, but go ahead. That's fine. Mm-hmm. It just ties in with this concept of opening a door, so 
Right. Definitely. So here you have the key of David. It's and notice what the key is being used for. Um, in the last part of verse seven, it says, "He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth." So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to use this key to open something that no man can shut, and I'm going to shut something else that no man can now open. And then if you go to verse 8, it becomes a little bit more clear. It says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. What was the open door opened with the key of David that Jesus set before the church of Philadelphia? There's a hand back here. Let's... Um, speak up. Right. It's very true. So, as was said back here, this door that is open that no man could shut, this door that was set as an open door before the Church of Philadelphia was the entrance into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And as you notice, Jesus, he has the key of David because when he opens this door, he has the key to the kingdom of David, and when he opens that door, he's going to reign forever and ever. And you see that concept in Revelation 11 when the seventh trumpet sounds and the Ark of the Testament is seen in the most holy place, and Jesus reigns forever and ever. So here you see the concept of the transfer from the holy place to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary in the message to the church of Philadelphia. And in verse 8 it says, I know thy works. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So again, the Philadelphia church, along with the Smyrna church, these are the only the two churches of the seven that do not receive rebukes. They only receive commendations for their works. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that thou hast loved me. Now, here in the, the church of Philadelphia, God is describing a people who are the synagogue of Satan. That's very strong language. Now, when you hear this term, the synagogue of Satan, does this sound like a religious group of people or a non-religious group of people? This sounds like a religious group. And furthermore, they say they are Jews, but they are not, and they lie. So they are liars saying that we are God's people, but they really aren't. Now, if you look in Scripture, Romans 2, Galatians 3, we see that... Um, Paul says, you're not a Jew who is one outwardly, but, but if, if you are inwardly. In Galatians 3, it says, um, they that are Christ are Abraham's seed. And in Galatians 5.24, it says, they, to, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Now, 
so we see the concept of those who are spiritual Jews have an inward experience. They've crucified the flesh with the affections of lust. They're crucified with Christ. These people say they are, but they are not, and they're liars. Now, Alistair brought this out when we went through the Smyrna Church, but I want to go back to 1 John chapter 2 to show um, how God defines someone who is a liar in a spiritual sense. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. If I could have a volunteer to read 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, so what, who is a liar in a spiritual sense? They say, I know Jesus, but they don't keep the commandments of God. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments in John fourteen fifteen. Now, here is an interesting point. Um, what kind of language does Jesus use to describe people who break his commandments and profess to be Christians? He describes them as a religious group of people, but he specifically calls them the synagogue of Satan. Now, how many times have you heard people say, um, obedience doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is loving Jesus. And obedience doesn't matter at all. You know what Jesus calls those people? He calls them the synagogue of Satan. That's very strong language, but it's very clear here in Scripture. We don't want to be the synagogue of Satan. We want to be followers of Christ. And so if you ever hear anyone, and sometimes these people are well-meaning, but nonetheless, Jesus says, if you claim to know me and you break my commandments, you're part of the synagogue of Satan. So we see that concept here in Revelation 3 to the church of Philadelphia. They say they are Jews. They are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now, going on to verse 10, it says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, here you have the concept of the word of God's patience. Where else do you see the concept of, of patience in the book of Revelation? Sure. The patience of the sure, it's the 144,000, the patience of the saints in Revelation 14, 12, and it's also those who keep the commandments of God. So there we see the concept of obedience. So patience of the saints, commandments of God, the faith of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you have kept the word of my patience. So this Millerite movement kept the word of God's patience. Notice it says, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. What was the hour of temptation that came to the true believers of Philadelphia? Right. It was the great disappointment. So the hour of temptation for the Philadelphian believers, they were sorely tempted when the, the great disappointment came. And actually... Most of the Millerites lost their way after that time, and only about 50 hung on to the faith. And so Jesus' words here apply most directly to those 50 people who held on to their faith. Sometimes the Word of God is only for a very few that hang on.
So here Jesus says, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And then notice this concept of the second coming is mentioned again in verse 11. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man may take thy crown. What was he telling them to hold fast to? It was their belief in the second coming of Christ. And if they would hold fast to it, he said he would come quickly. Um, of course, that didn't happen except for a minority of believers. I want to read from an inspired statement from Ellen White about how she describes the Millerite movement. This is Great Controversy, page 401. Here she says, Of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel the holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. Now, if it's true that that movement was the most free of human imperfection from the time of the apostles to our day, it would only make sense that if Jesus is really going to come in our lifetime, our experience would need to exceed that of the Millerites. And if that's the case, we need to have an understanding of what their experience as a people was from 1832 to 1844. So if you've never studied the history of the Millerites, if you've never really experienced in your own heart the power of that message, I would challenge you to take time to go back and read books like The Midnight Cry by Francis Nichol, um, other books, The Magnificent Disappointment by C. Mervyn Maxwell. There's others, Foundations of the Seventh Adventist Message of Mission by Gerard Domsky. Those books will help you to catch a spirit of the message of 1844. And only until we mentally experience the 1844 message will we have the power to go through to the end um, in a way that even the Philadelphian church was not able to. And so the message to the Philadelphia church ends, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And what's fascinating to me is after the power of the Philadelphian church, we end up in Laodicea, the worst church of all. So here you have this powerful second advent experience, and then we go from that to a lukewarm Laodicean church just before Jesus comes. And that's what we're going to study next week. Alistair will be back to go through the message to Laodicea. So thank you, everyone.